Okay. Can you say something now? Yes. Can you hear me? <laughs> Did it work? <laughs> well, then now that this is working. Okay. Uh, do you want to do intro for this one? <laughs> okay. Welcome to our podcast, Poor People platform for people of color to discuss their socioeconomic backgrounds and to share their stories and financial experiences today. We are your hosts, me. Hi, I'm Jackie. Today, we will be discussing our backgrounds and giving you general information about why we started this podcast. The reason why we started this podcast was actually because we have a lot of passionate discussions about things, (laughs) mostly politics and our frustrations with finances and other policies uh right now i guess something that's more relevant was us discussing how the united states fails to have an economic and healthy safety nets during covid19 and it's sort of upsetting and really bad for tons and tons of yeah um yeah so the i mean the goal of our podcast is basically to inform people and to pass information along to others. Things that we, growing up, we we had specific information passed to us from our parents, but we learned different things along the way. Stereotypes that our parents passed along to us that were necessarily not true, maybe. Mm-hmm. So we want to share our experiences and our information that we've gained through the workplace, through friends, through just different resources we thought would be helpful to us maybe when we were younger or just people of the same generation. Yeah. And we want to share this with our core set of values to help shape our conversations. We want to provide progressive conversations and views in today's economic environment. Also challenge traditional views as Jackie already hinted at imposed on us by our immigrant parents to disrupt the status quo and tear down a bunch of barriers that we face. And also we want to build a safe environment and space for people to share their experiences and their voices as well. Our target audience, I would say generally is is people of color, people that are disadvantaged, but honestly, anyone that just wants to listen to us. <laughs> we're just two people just talking and decided we wanted to record our our thoughts because sometimes they're useful. Like I've learned things about me, you know, I never knew before. And she tells me about stocks and stuff sometimes that. Yeah. And I learned from Jackie sometimes. I I wish I could go back and remember what she said exactly. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Or it's hard to dig through chats, you know, there's so much text. (laughs) I don't forget what some of the the common theme words are for the one I want to try to search. It's difficult. Uh, But if we could sort of shape certain episodes to cover specific topics, I think that'll be helpful, not just for me or you, but for possibly other people as well. Yeah, Um, But as a a disclaimer, again, like we are not experts and this really is just just a collection of things that we discuss that we wish we either knew when we were younger or at other stages of our life that would have been useful. Awesome. So me, um, why don't you start and tell us about where you grew up? I grew up in Northern California, like Redwood Coast, Humboldt County, and a very small city, (laughs) predominantly white, not many 
other colors. There's a small uh, Hmong community. I'm Hmong. There's like a couple of African-American families, some Native American families, and like two Chinese families, one of which I'm actually pretty close friends with today, and like some Mexican families. Um, so how did how did your family end up in that area? Was it just because there was already a Hmong community established there? Or how, how did you end up in that specific area of California? I'm, I forget, not exactly sure. So my parents came over as uh, refugees from the Vietnam War. And my dad originally flew into Hawaii and my mom into Seattle. They somehow found each other, I think, actually <laughs> in the Bay Area. And then... I, I honestly think my dad said that he wanted to move away from the Bay Area. Um, by Bay, I mean like in between uh, San Francisco and Sacramento because there was too many Hmong gangs around. He felt unsafe. So um, I think he heard of this place called Eureka that was further away um, and close to the coast. And he thought that was a good place to raise his kids. So that's how we ended up there. Um me and all of my siblings, uh, actually, except for one, were born in Eureka. That's interesting. Eureka is like way up there. Yeah, I, it's like think, super north. Yeah, I think the only time I've ever been close to Eureka is when I've driven to Oregon, or I think I went camping somewhere once really close there, but yeah. way up there. <laughs> Can you uh, tell me a little bit about you, where you grew up? Yeah, so I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, I grew up in Sunnyvale, which I have heard is called the heart of the Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's so my my parents also came over because of the Vietnam War. They're refugees, um, and they actually didn't end up in California originally. Um, I think my mom originally went to I think New Mexico in Albuquerque, and then my mom and my sister moved around a bit to Virginia and then New York and then eventually landed in California. Um, mm. And I think it's it's probably because there's a relatively large Vietnamese population in the San Jose area in general. Yeah. Um, so that's I think that's why we landed in the Bay Area. And honestly, it was it was a good spot, I think, overall in terms of like I got I think my family was very lucky to be in the Bay Area just because of all the opportunity it offered um our family with technology and like i mean at the time it wasn't it wasn't a thing where it's like oh technology is going to be the big thing right? <laughs> Silicon Valley. but i yeah. mean i think i lucked out on I that i think it's it's awesome that there's such a strong vietnamese community there too was did your parents um did your mom like how did they originally find out about the community that was there was that just word of mouth <laughs> yeah i think I think that's a big thing, right, with with immigrants in the United States. Once you find a community um, that you belong to, you kind of just hear word of mouth kind of stuff. Because mm. I, I think with the Vietnamese community, it, you generally land in specific areas. It's usually California and the Bay Area um, or in L.A. or, like, I guess, Orange County area or Texas. Yes. Um, and there's, like, depending on... I guess who you talk to, you'll end up in those areas. But there's those big Vietnamese populations in very specific areas. And I think a lot of that has to do with word of mouth. Cool. We talk about religion. Growing up, did you have a pretty religious family or um, did you go to church or temple? Um, so I grew up Buddhist, but I 
I mean, I feel like I don't regularly practice the religion in, in the general sense of how we talk about it now, I think, and I guess the traditional sense. I, I mean, growing up, I did go to the temple probably every weekend and like learned about Buddhist values and whatnot. But I think now I don't generally, I suppose, regularly practice in the sense that I don't go to the temple very often. Um mm-hmm. But I think it did shape a lot of my values in the sense of, um, so with, with Buddhism, it's a lot of, it's funny because a lot of it has to do with like being not materialistic and not causing suffering and all those things. And I think a lot of that has translated to how I view my day-to-day life, um, minus the minimalist aspect because I'm kind of a pack rat. But um, generally, I mean, it it wasn't super, I don't know. I I guess it's not super, like I didn't, I don't think religion was a super strong part of my background growing up, minus the fact like my parents would, or my mom would always be like, oh, don't be an asshole to people and don't cause suffering. (laughs) But not, yeah, not, not, I guess in a huge way, that I guess American culture has it with like Christianity and Catholicism and whatnot. Um, what, what about you? How was, how's your family and religion? Um, I grew up Baptist and got baptized without realizing what was happening really. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's very true of a lot of kids, right? They don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think honestly, I think what I remember was um, my older brother and sister were getting baptized and they were probably in their early t- tens or teens and they wanted to just have all the kids be baptized at the same time because there was a bunch <laughs> of us. Um, so, so we all just did it at once. And I believe we were Baptists because um, it was my parents, specifically my dad was having a hard time um, financially and you know being assimilated into the community so he had his co-worker um come up to him one day he's like hey like if you feel like you need more support or need some help like maybe mentally um you could come try coming to church with me and this was one of the I think foundational aspects for how he and and what sort of defined caring for other people like someone reached out to him and had no obligation to do so and sort of helped him um cope with all the change that was happening so yeah he sort of forced all the kids to go too <laughs> I mean it, it, that's very common right usually if when yeah. people grow up around religion it's because their parents have introduced them to some kind of religion it's not something that I think people as they grow up, like, I'm going to pick up this religion. I mean, it happens, but it's not, yeah. not something that happens super regularly. For for us, um, it was just a part of everyday life. Like, we went to Sunday school, um, and Sunday was about going to church and dressing a certain way and learning certain things. Um, but I, f- I feel like I stopped attending um, when I was a teenager and my dad was pretty upset about that and still sort of is. So it's a little disappointing. We have um, our disagreements there, but I mean, he, I don't have a problem with him continuing the practice. I just parted my way with the religion. So, and now he's actually 
the uh, pastor of the Hmong Baptist community in Eureka. So at some point, I, I, I don't know, I, maybe I just stopped believing. I don't, I don't know if, I don't recall if there was any particular event, but it was sort of difficult for me. Like it took me a long time to stop praying. Um, even after I realized that, Hey, maybe this, I don't quite believe in this religion. It just something about stopping praying was really difficult for me. Do you think the, the split, I suppose, between your parents and you and in terms of religion has is that the only thing regarding values that is is different between you guys or what um I think it's one of the major things for sure and it's more important to my dad than it is to my mom I think because of how strongly it it affected him when he transitioned over um my mom's not too vocal about it. I, I feel like when we talk about not going to church, it's usually my dad that's like, why didn't you go to church? You should go with us. Um, she's a little bit more passive about it, but not just religiously. I feel like there's some other things that uh, I defer in values with my parents. A lot of it is actually tradition, um, traditional values. My parents would prefer if... I stayed home, uh, was like the perfect daughter that <laughs> cooked and served them and, you know, did chores. And there, there's tons of cultural things, like traditional things I don't necessarily believe in. Hmong is predominantly like a really patriarchal society. And, you know, a lot of women get silenced. You don't really get to voice out how you feel about certain things. You just do what you're told. I don't really like that. Yeah, I got that gets me in trouble. That got me in trouble, and I still occasionally still get in trouble by it. So I, I I've learned to just really pick my fights these days. A lot of that type of thing that's not really Western thinking. Yeah, and that that's like a yeah. I think that's a common struggle with a lot of um, you know children. Of immigrants. Yes. Yeah. I, I was even saying for you. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit more about oh, yeah. you and I, values? So, um, I feel like generally I my mom is kind of I suppose unique in the sense that she while she does hold a bunch of traditional Vietnamese cultural values, it's it's not quite the same. Um, I think a lot of that had to do with how we grew up as a family. Um, so I grew up in a single parent household um, and it was my mom, my sister and me. Um, so it was just all women. And it kind of, I feel <laughs> like was very much a strong independent woman household kind of thing. Um, and it was, it was interesting because it was while she wanted us to be independent and be able to stand on our own two feet um, and do all these things for ourselves and not depend on, you know, the quote-unquote man. Um, I think it was, she had those values, um, which isn't super, super traditional, but also wanted to try to also be traditional in the sense where she believed in, you know, the gender roles and wanted me to, yeah, um, yeah. you know, like have a husband that made more than, you know, I did and like hold those values, have a husband that, you know, is the traditional, like, um, 
breadwinner and, and whatnot. Um, cause it, and it, a lot of that played out in interesting ways because it, in a way she wanted me to be independent and do all these things and be very capable, but also there were like silly things that came out. Like she wanted me to be more feminine. Um, and, um, like when it came to sports and stuff, I, I grew up very like tomboyish and very sporty <laughs> and she would, she would say things like, Hey, careful not to work out too much. Cause you don't want your arms to be big the way that I had to have my arms big because I had to do a lot of chores. And, you know, if your arms are really big, it's not attractive to a guy and you won't be able to find a husband that way. And, you know, like, it, it was funny. It was, it was, it was like a weird kind of traditional, but also not traditional. So in, in the sense, I feel like a lot of values my mom tried to instill in me were traditional, but also kind of American in certain ways, um, in terms of like progressive traditional. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I would say compared to a lot of my, my Asian friends, um, that grew up in the States, I feel like she was a lot more progressive. Like it wasn't, it wasn't quite the same. I didn't have the same restrictions, even though there were certain things that were very traditional with like the cultural stuff. Yeah. Um, speaking of growing up in a single parent household, um, did you guys get any kind of government assistance? Um, kind of. So the thing that was interesting, um, like I mentioned before, growing up in the Silicon Valley, it's, it's booming with tech and stuff, right? Not, not in the same way that it is now with like Twitter and Facebook and everything. Um, but you know, like with the first wave of technology, there was still a lot of manufacturing jobs. Um, and my mom was lucky enough to be able to pick up those skills, um, mm-hmm. and made a decent living, um, putting together different computer-esque parts, um, for, for devices and, and whatnot. So, um, at the time in the nineties, um, she was able to get a manufacturing job and do all that stuff and make a a decent living at the time when manufacturing was still big in the States. Um, and to some extent we, I mean, we weren't like well off or anything, but I think we did pretty well. My mom's just good with budgeting, I guess. I, Oh yeah. I, I feel like we didn't need too much, but I do remember being on free reduced lunches during grade school. Um, every couple years. Um, Mm -hmm. and the thing that I think is very interesting is I, I didn't think that was anything weird. Like I I've heard kids nowadays potentially being embarrassed or feeling uncomfortable with, with accepting some stuff like that. Oh, Um, which is interesting because I think a lot of kids in my area, um, also were on free reduced lunch. So it wasn't a, you know, so I, I always think that's, it's really interesting to, while growing up in the Bay Area, being what is now considered so expensive and so wealthy, to to grow up, you know, in an, in an area, still get that kind of stuff, but also be in a school that has a lot of the same population that you know is is working class and whatnot, which uh, is it's interesting to me. Yeah, so and I. <laughs> something you said just sort of sparked like a little bit of memory for me. We did grow up on welfare and section eight housing and I had subsidized lunches and I was always, I don't know, like I was sort of ashamed going to wait in line because I knew that that meant that our family 
didn't make enough money to have the kids bring in their own lunches. Because I had like two different group of friends, honestly. I started noticing when I was in middle school, um, I had my wife friends and then I had my mom friends, which is mostly like my cousins or like people that I grew up with. Um, it was always the Hmong people that were going in line to get lunch and all my, my like white and American friends would have their own lunches. Um, and they would always be the first ones to sit down and start eating and they would have to wait for me to get my lunch because I had to go and wait in the cafeteria line. And I don't know, something that always, I always felt a little bit ashamed and thinking back now, like that's such a stupid feeling to have. I should I should have just been thankful that I had some way to get food. I mean, um, I I don't think that's something to be to to feel silly about feeling. I, I think the thing that's the issue is that kids at that age have to feel that way, um, and I think the only reason why I didn't feel that way was honestly it was just lucky to be where I I was. Like I think if it was, if my school wasn't as mixed as it was, um, it, it would feel different, right? Because there's there's a very, like, I, I know a lot of people nowadays like to talk about how, like, oh, we shouldn't see race and whatnot. But, I mean, having people as distinctly as, like, split up, like the way you described, like having your white group of friends and then your mom group of friends, having that separation already, um, I think plays into that a lot and plays into, like, the fact that um, your family does not have a lot of money. And I think in the school that I went to, I just happened to have like just a wide mix of (laughs) different kinds, different people with different backgrounds. There was the white kids that were poor, but there were also the Mexican kids that were poor and they're like the Chinese kids that were poor. And it was just a big mixture, I feel like. And I don't Mm -hmm. know if it was just being naive or, or just the fact that I had such a big mix of people and I was in a diverse community, um, in the barrier that made me feel like d- didn't make me even think about that kind of thing. Like to some extent I knew I was poor, but like it didn't feel that big. You were poor with everyone else. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think that's, that's the interesting thing. I think Hmm, the fact yeah. that you were in an area, you know, where it was predominantly white, I think. It was stark. Yeah, the, the difference. Yeah. Stark difference. Yeah. You can tell, like, the cafeteria where you sat was was different, too. Like, um, different sections of the cafeteria belonged to a certain color, honestly, if you look at it that way. One side was the, the darker-skinned brown people, yellow people, and the other side was, like, lighter-skinned white people. I don't know how it's like these days, but that's how it was like during middle school and high school. Yeah. And so the thing, the thing that's funny um, that we mentioned that about schools is, so my, all the schools that I went to technically were considered diverse for the district. Um, And the thing that I I always thought was interesting was a lot of the times when we talked about different schools and school districts, and this is all the way up until high school, um, the schools that were more diverse were always considered quote unquote ghetto. Um, because they had more of the Mexican kids or um, the black kids or whatever. And the schools that I always went to, like, I didn't see a problem with it just because that's how I grew up. But I can see, I suppose, the the schools where there was more of a split. Um, like, there was, like, our rival schools from, like, I don't know, a mile away in Cupertino. <laughs> <laughs> um, they They were more, like, 
white and Asian kids and it was less like Latino and black kids at their school. So I can see why they might have that perception, but honestly, like, I don't know. It's, it was perfectly normal to me. And like, there was a lot of poor people at at my schools and it, it wasn't, it wasn't such a big deal, but I can see it being like, if there was less diversity and less, I guess, yeah. people having it seem, feel a lot different. We didn't even have many options. We had two middle schools and one public high school. Um, maybe one high school north and one high school south. Mm-hmm. But within our city, we only had one high school that was public. And then there was like a private Catholic school. Mm-hmm. And then there's, I guess, technically another public one. Um was for delinquents. Oh, like if you did not fit in the the high school that I went into because you kept making a lot of trouble or suspended or expelled, the only other one you could go to was the high school for delinquents. Um, I think yeah, us, so that meant you had one choice <laughs> basically for high school. I think for us, if you were delinquent um, or you just caused trouble, they just moved you around to different schools. Um, <laughs> Um, which, which was interesting. Uh, we, we didn't have, I mean, there was like the school for like adults and, um, teenage girls that got pregnant and could not, you know, fit into your stereotypical yeah. school schedule. But yep. other than that, I think people just moved around to different schools if they got into fights a lot. We didn't, we didn't have yeah. a school for delinquents. I don't think <laughs> that was basically our other school. The alternative school was school for full delinquents. It was, it's sort of crazy thinking about it now. Yeah, it's um, interesting because it kind of disadvantages them a little more even yeah. um, when you're stuck in that kind of environment where they're just like, you guys are delinquents. <laughs> um, so since we're on the topic of education, um, why don't we talk more about how how your education was from like grade school to, I guess, college and how you prepped for college, if you prepped for college. Yeah. Um, how did that play into your life? Um. I feel like mm, there wasn't really anything significant about my K through 12. I, so I was very sheltered. My parents didn't want me to be doing recreational activities and we didn't even have the money for it. I remember in elementary school, it was usually like second or third grade when our school had the opportunity for the students to learn um, string instruments. And that was when I realized, hey, I want to play the violin. And they had a couple of loaner violins out, but you could only use it for a couple of months. And I practiced a little bit and eventually I had to turn it back in and I couldn't play anymore because we couldn't afford a violin. So I, that was the end of my, my violin playing. I learned how to plug. <laughs> um, it's and then violin. Cause I also learned the violin in elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> Must be an Asian thing. It's violins and pianos. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I feel like if I had to go, if if I were to go back in time and change one thing, I I, I tried it really hard to get a violin and and keep playing it. I I respect the violin a lot. Um, and then uh, even like throughout middle school and high school, I didn't do much. The only thing I really did recreationally, if you consider it that, was. Uh, a college bound program during summer. And that I don't, that's, I don't even consider that recreation. That was just more school. Um, and the reason why that was okay was because I was going to school during summer. Um, <laughs> but like, I didn't, I couldn't do sports and 
uh, literally when I got home from school, I would just do my homework and then like continue staying at home. But like, this is where I picked up hobbies is like, I drew a lot when I was a kid. That's what I did. Like I drew, um, and read, read a lot of manga, watched a lot of anime. <laughs> video did you, that's what, that's my childhood. Did you draw a lot because your parents, uh, got you to draw or like what how can I remember you told uh, you told me about yeah. two truths and a lie thing and you were talking about like <laughs> no. drawing things. I feel like that that drawing thing that my mom did for me was when I was in elementary school probably when I was kindergartner until like second grade and that was it I don't think that had anything to do with me drawing because I didn't I don't think I actually picked up drawing more until middle school okay and that had more to do with me like watching anime and realizing that I could mimic what I see on TV. Um, but yeah, it, it was totally just me passing the time. Cause like, like I said, I couldn't leave the home. My parents did not trust the, the city, like the people around us. Like they were really paranoid um, about anything happening to us. And like I said, like everything was brand new for them. They don't, they just had a lot, a lot of lack and trust in even like the, the policing system and the government. So the best thing they could do was to keep us indoors. Do you think that Very was a result of, of what they heard throughout the community or was that just, they were like, if we do these things specifically, then we know that we'll keep our children safe. Like what, where did the, where do you think the fear came from? I honestly, I think a lot of it was from the media, what they saw on TV, because the, the news coverage is like mostly sensational yeah. stuff, like really bad stuff. And then maybe a couple of uplifting things. But a lot of it was a lot of it was racist too, like black person, this black person, that and also like not just the news, but um, TV shows and movies, like lots of violence and stuff. And I feel like th- that that sort of painted a picture to them, like what America was like, mm-hmm. even though obviously it's not hundred percent true. There's some truths to it. Yeah. Um, they're in a different society. These are the types of things that can happen because I don't know. I'm not sure. Like whatever it was, like the things that they were consuming on the TV and the type of things that they would see in real life too, just, um, I don't know, scared them. And, They didn't want to have to deal with these things in a place they didn't know very well. And English is their second language. Um, So, yeah, I think they just felt it safer for everyone if if we just stayed home or if we did go out. It was very minimal. Like we would go grocery shopping, do laundry or go visit family, Um, maybe go to a park. And even then, it's like during, during certain hours. Yeah. As soon as the sunset, like we were gone. <laughs> yeah. I, I think your experience with, with your parents being a, a little more strict about you moving about and whatnot, you, you mentioned that. Um, very strict. A, yeah. Yeah. Very sheltered experience. I, I feel like that is very common from what I've heard from my friends that are, you know, Asian Americans um, that, that grew up with immigrant parents. I feel like that's, it's a very common thing. Um, Cause I, I've had friends where like, they can't go to sleepovers because they're going to get kidnapped and, you know, like murdered. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff like yeah. that. Um, and it's like continuing the whole being sheltered thing and the education part. Like I literally had to have a multi-month argument with my dad about leaving home and going to university away from home because it's very non-traditional for a woman, a Hmong woman who is not married to leave. Mm-hmm. Um the home so like I I remember struggling a lot like just talking with him he didn't understand why I had to leave because 
there is a, like Humboldt University was nearby. Right. Um, like not even 15 minute drive away. He's like, why can't you just go there? Like you can get a bachelor's <laughs> there. And he didn't understand the reason why I wanted to one, not just leave, no, that's just escape home, but um, you know, opportunities. He doesn't understand the word opportunity and he doesn't understand the words of like different programs or like <laughs> this exists here. This, the school's better for this. Um, a lot of these were really foreign to him and he didn't understand. And again, like very sheltering and especially of his daughter, like you are moving away from, from me, your dad who protects you. Cause you're not married yet. Like I had to argue with him for so long and even he still, <laughs> when I eventually came time to leave, to move, um, to university, uh, I didn't have a car, didn't drive. So he had to drive me and he was so angry that he had to do this, but he knew that I was going to do it regardless. Yeah. Um, I would figure it out. So he ended up just <laughs> driving me. Cause he's like, if, if you're going to do it anyways, I might as well be the one to make sure that you get to where you need to be. And even when, like when I was a sophomore and junior, like he was still like very angry that I left for university. Um, I think it wasn't until multiple years after I graduated that he realized that. I was able to do it yeah. <laughs> alone. So like all throughout college, um, I, I just to prove it a point, like I never asked him or my mom for like a cent or a penny. Like I never asked them for money. Um, and I still haven't, uh, which I think is great. Cause I, I, like I have a job and a career now. Um, if anything, like I'm the one who can help them mm-hmm. and it's a fortunate place to be in. But yeah, like I had, a, I had a, I feel like I had to prove myself to him um, to make him understand that just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I can't do it. Yeah, I think that's a very, so you you mentioned uh, needing to prove yourself. And I think that's a very common theme with uh, just um, Asian American kids growing up in the States. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think that's the experience I had as well, um, but slightly different. So education was a huge thing in my family, um, just mainly because of the whole like single parent household thing. Um, my mom was very much like, Hey, if you want to escape poverty, if you don't want to work the way I do, you have to get an education. And I mean, to be fair, it was, it was something that was, I feel like preached to a lot of kids in the nineties. Right. Um, now, especially with like college debt and stuff and bootstraps and all that stuff that we always <laughs> talk about. Um, that was something I think that not only my mom instilled in me, it was a lot of my teachers and school counselors and everything always talked about how the path to success was, was higher education. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's just generally how I grew up for a long time. Like just that having that, that goal and, and that idea in mind that the only way I could succeed ever was to go to college. Um, The thing that was interesting, I suppose, and I I think a lot of people have this same issue is when you're Asian, you can only, you can only learn a couple things, right? You can either become a doctor, uh, a lawyer, or sometimes depending (laughs) on the parent will allow you to become an engineer. Um, (laughs) When I was a kid, um, I, I think from like eight years old until like I was in college, probably like midway through college, 
I would, I knew I was going to study science and I knew I was going to go into pre-med and I was like, I'm going to be this doctor. I'm going to be a pediatrician. And even, even prior to that, like when I was five, I wanted to be a dentist. Like I have a, Oh, I was that already drilled into you? Yeah, it was, it was drilled in pretty early. And I have like a, you know, like when in, in like elementary school, when the teachers have you have those like show and tell posters and whatnot, and they have your picture and like, what do you want to be when you grow up kind of thing? I have, yeah. I, I still have that. It's at my mom's house. It's Aww, laminated and it's on one of our closet doors. And specifically it says that I wanted to be a dentist. And I, I was like in kindergarten or something when I created that. But when I was eight, I d- had decided, you know, I'm going to go to Stanford. I'm going to, you know, major in science and become this pediatrician and make tons of money. Um, <laughs> funny because I am not a doctor now. And I, I figured, I think somewhere through maybe I think sophomore year of college when I interned at a hospital, I hated hospitals and I did not want to be in, in a hospital being a doctor, um, as much as that is a respective profession. Um, yeah. I, I think education for, for me and my family was, was, was a way to escape poverty and, and to, basically not be poor anymore right um and I never even thought about that when I was a kid I feel like I missed a lot of things um I didn't I don't know if my parents drilled into us that we had to be a lawyer or a doctor they mentioned it maybe once or twice when we were kids Mm -hmm. but it wasn't an ongoing thing that they would process like other families would um it was more important that we got good grades than like worrying about the future, which is a little funny because like, why else am I going to be working on getting good grades for? They would say like for a good job, but it's not a clear enough goal. Uh, if I were to look back, I'm like, wait, what do you mean? If I get good grades, I'll get a good job. Is that how it works? Spoiler, it's not how it works. So yeah, <laughs> not anymore. Not really. I feel like it used to work that way, like back in the eighties or something. Um, in my mom's mind, Having a job in medicine is is something that is very stable and stability mm. would be a big thing, right? Because um, like when when you're when you're a single parent, that's the one thing you need for your your children is is stability. And I think that was the the big thing. I think a lot of the motivation behind wanting me to be a doctor was was stability, but there's also you know there's some prestige behind being a doctor. And the thing with with my family is um, because my family was a single parent household, some of my relatives, and I'm sure you have this issue too, where, you know, Asian relatives, they're always like gossipy and they're like, oh, um, so-and-so's, you know. (laughs) Comparing the children. Yeah, exactly. So I I think a lot of it had to do with that too is, is. Uh, a lot of people in my family kind of looked down on on um, uh-huh. my immediate family, uh, my mom and my sister, and and I, um, especially because my my sister was the rebellious one during her teenage years, and it was it was very much a like people looked at us as kind of like almost like failures, like a black sheep of the family. So part of it, I think, had to yeah, it sucked. <laughs> but I mean, uh, I think part of it was stability. Part of it was like you, we are able to succeed. We're not, you know, like failures or whatnot. And there's like a whole entire back history about that whole thing. But but yeah, generally it was, education was, was a huge thing in my family. And it's, you know, the stereotype of like, 
you have to get A. What is what is B? B is for B. <laughs> that is very much a, a thing. I mean, like my mom didn't say that, but like anytime I got like an A minus, it was like, oh no, why do you, why is it a minus? Like, why do you not have an A? Um, yeah. And I think for the longest time, um, even like report cards in in you know elementary school, where you're getting like. O's for outstanding and S for satisfactory. Like the goal was always <laughs> to get outstandings for everything. And the funny thing was, I remember the one thing that I didn't do as well on was always science. <laughs> but you know, like there was this goal to become a doctor, so I had to be good in science. Um, but yeah, it was it was always like education was such a huge thing. And um, it's funny when you mentioned that because your parents had you focus on education so much that, um, recreation activities wasn't a thing. Um, for me, it was the opposite where, because, um, uh, the school counselors I talked to and everything, they're like, well, grades aren't everything nowadays to get into college. So you have to be a more well-rounded candidate to be a good candidate for college. So yeah. then, then I had to, I added on so many, like, to this day, like I think about it and it's like, why did I do so many crazy things, um, to, to look like attractive, I suppose, to a college. Um, cause like now that I think about it, like after going through college and everything, you know, it's like, I probably didn't need to do all those things, but, um, like in addition to like trying to get straight A's all the time, um, it was like, I did sports, I did track and field. Um, and then I was part of key club to do public service stuff. I was part of the national honor society for academics um, and then when I had like a K-pop phase in, <laughs> in the last couple of years of high school, like I started a, a Beats of Asia thing to do dance and like cultural what's-its, um, but mainly K-pop and, you know, J-pop and stuff. But it, it was yeah. like very much, I needed to fill this, this entire resume of why I was such a great candidate for all these schools when technically, I mean, the goal was, you know, to go to a UC, to go to University of California. But I mean, I could have gone to a state college and it would have been perfectly fine. But um, for me, it was always, always have to go to like a Stanford or like a UC. And even UCs, it's like not as good as Stanford, you know. Um, and the, the thing that was interesting is, is my mom also, while she was, you know, you're not super traditional Vietnamese woman, she also wanted me to stay close to home. So I actually wanted yeah. to go to Cornell in New York, but um, she didn't even want me to apply. She wanted me to stay closer to home. Um, her her goal was for me to go to Berkeley. Um, you know, UC Berkeley, the one that Asian moms always talk about. Um, but I decided to go to Davis because it was further away from home. Um, despite making it into Berkeley and everything, it was just like, but if you go to Berkeley, it's like so prestigious. Um, but you know, <laughs> you know, like I, again, like my parents always stressed doing well in school, but I never thought too much of where I was going to go after high school. Um, our family didn't really talk about university. I think that was because again, we were sheltered and my parents didn't really want us being the kids to the women to leave the home. So I never even thought about where I was going to go until like I had to do these applications. Um, sort of sad thing about it now, cause I didn't even know what I wanted to study. And honestly, what sort of led me towards STEM was a scholarship that I got. 
um, I was going to be able to get a Fulbright scholarship and all of graduate school paid if I went to a STEM field. So I chose a STEM field. Um, but I'd never put effort into thinking about what I was actually going to study. I knew some things that I liked, but I never thought about, you know, like a career afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I didn't talk with uh, a high school counselor to figure out what that life was going to be like. I don't know if it's because I wasn't proactive enough as a student to reach out and ask for help, or I just wasn't a problem child. I just never, it just, it just never happened. I mean, so I, I don't, I think like, a, is that a failing on the counselor side too, or I, what? I think so. That's a failure. I mean, I'm sure we'll go um, to get to this at, at some point to talk about <laughs> as a whole. Um, Cause I have so many thoughts about that, but I, I think it's, it's a failure on our, our general education system. Um, and I, like, I didn't notice it at the time, but I think I've just been fortunate to be in a school system where we have had the funds. I mean, like in the Bay Area, you think of it as one of the the richest parts of the country, right? Even, even in a school that, you know, we were considered the ghetto school or whatnot, but even, <laughs> even then we, we had great teachers and great resources where I remember my first year of um, high school as, as a freshman, they brought in a speaker that talked to us and it was this great motivational speaker that just talked about how, yeah, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And that's something that was instilled in us again and again, year after year. And it was, it was something where we, we were assigned a counselor and we spoke to him every so often. And those ideas were even, I mean, like, I don't think you had something where you regularly met up with the counselor where they assigned it to you, but they at least gave you the chance to talk to a counselor. Yeah. I, I don't think that's something that is the fault of the student. I think it's the fault of yeah. the education system, which has to do with a lot of different like nuances or things like funding and like having people that actually care, um, you know, and that, yeah. that also has to do with funding and, and how, I, where the area is. I'm thinking about it now too. And I feel like a lot of it had to do with, we were just, in the blind spot of people that could have helped us out. I'm not sure. I I feel like maybe it's a little bit better now, but um, it's really strange. I was an honor roll student. (laughs) Yeah. And I I think that's just a failing of of the education system overall. I think there's a lot of inequities when it comes to education throughout the Bay, like just even in California, right? Like you're, you're in like Humboldt County and I was in the Bay area. And even though my school wasn't super well funded. It was funded enough where we had a guidance counselor. Shout out to Mr. Bo. He's the best. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, he, like we had someone that even though he didn't, wasn't able to talk to every single student all the time, he was there and he made it a point to tell us that he was there. Um, and you know, it's, it's, when you have one counselor to hundreds of students, it makes it really difficult to reach out even to your best students. Sometimes it's like, well, do I reach out to the best students? Do I reach out to the students that are, you know, having trouble yeah. with things? Like who do I reach out to? Um, so there's, when you have one counselor and hundreds of students, it's, it's very difficult to, to give advice to students like that. Yeah. Um, I, I think it was also a, a misunderstanding of how, and what the Hmong people value too. 
um, if, if they had known that the Hmong people and the parents especially have a problem accepting that their children are going to go away for, for university, like that was an issue in itself. Um, right. But again, I don't know how the resources are like these days. Yeah. I hope that it's a little better. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping they'd be better. And I think, <laughs> I think, again, that has to do with a lot with, with just understanding the, the cultural aspect of things. Right. Um, there's, I mean, I've had conversations with different friends about, you know, if you have a community that is more diverse, the, the person in charge is more likely to have been exposed to more situations and, and different cultural values of, of people from, from different areas of the world. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I mean, if you're in an area where it's predominantly white, um, it's probably not as the, the, the person that's a counselor is less likely to be as exposed where like in the Bay area, there's a lot more diversity. So the counselor I had, he's Filipino, um, and he's dealt with, you know, Latino students, Filipino students, Vietnamese students, Chinese students, white students, like all these different kinds of backgrounds. So I think he, he had more of a grasp of like maybe what we valued more or what our parents valued more, or like how to approach situations a little better than someone that doesn't have as much exposure, you know? Um, so I think that's, that's one of the inequities of, of just how education is in the United States. It's, it's cultural understandings, it's funding, yeah. it's just all those different things. Lo- a lot like of this is definitely a topic that we can talk about more at length. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. We yeah should move on or else we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll spend about a it. whole podcast. On this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of university and afterwards, what did you end up doing actually? Ooh, uh, so this is this is very interesting because it <laughs> it it filled me with so much shame for the longest time. No. Um, so I so I, I graduated from UC Davis with a degree in neurobiology um, and American history, and I didn't do anything related to any of that. <laughs> so I, I was pre med. Um, I went through the whole pre med track and making sure I took all the science classes I needed to. Um, but by the end of college, I had decided that I was not going to pursue med- medical school, one, because I hated hospitals, but two, because the grades weren't just up to par to someone that was on track to go to med school. I could, you know, go to post back and, you know, try to improve some grades and like organic chemistry, which I was terrible at. <laughs> but, you know, like it's it was something I had decided that I wasn't going to do. Um, so for a while it was, you know, I wanted to, to work in laboratories thinking like the lab, like lab work, I, I'm a scientist at this point, so I should probably do lab work. But, um, and it was still considered, I suppose, prestigious cause it's, it's science related, right? It's a STEM field. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't even want to do that. Like I worked for a lab, um, for maybe four or five months. Um, but I hated it so much. Like I, as you can tell, talk a lot. Um, and I, I just not someone that can stick in a lab environment. Like I enjoyed the work in, in the sense that like my results always were good yields and everything, but it, it just, it just wasn't personality fit for me, you know? Um, yeah. and then, so for, after that, I worked at, uh, Starbucks for a bit. I worked, um, for a design company doing some like, uh, QC work, um, and actually that's, that's how I got into tech. I started working for, um, a company called minted, 
Um, and I was doing some seasonal stuff while I was working at the lab because the lab didn't pay me. Long story there. <laughs> but um, <laughs> working for this design company, I was like, oh, maybe I should do design stuff, like graphic design stuff, because I like playing things on the computer and designing things and whatnot. Um, cause I did some of that stuff in college and, uh, you know, I applied to a bunch of design jobs and I obviously didn't have the portfolio for it cause I'm not a designer. Um, but you know, like after a couple months of working at Starbucks, <clears throat> I ended up landing my first full time, like proper job at Yelp, um, working in their user ops department, um, and that was my first stint into the tech industry. And, um, I've been here ever since, but for the longest time, because of the, me being instilled with the idea that, you know, I had to be a doctor. It was, it took <laughs> forever for me to get over this, like just overbearing dread and feeling of shame that, you know, I had failed my, my mom because, you know, I, I couldn't become a doctor like she wanted me to. Um, and it, it was very much like, oh man, now like everyone else in my family is going to think I'm a failure and everything. Um, but something that I thought really helped me through all this was um, one of my good friends, Wendy, told me that, you know, it's my life. <laughs> so if, if I do something that makes me happy and that allows me to make a living and, and support myself, it shouldn't be something I should be ashamed of. And the people that will judge you for those things will always judge you regardless of where you are in life. So, um, it took a long time. I, sometimes I still think about it, especially since a lot of my friends, you know, are in, um, professional schools, they're becoming doctors, pharmacists, optometrists, whatever. Um, there was, it was a big, just source of shame for the longest time no. trying to figure out what I wanted to do with life. Um, yeah. and to some extent, like I've jumped around a couple jobs, um, in, in terms of career wise, like I was doing user ops, I was doing customer service, customer support. Um, then I was doing tech support and then, you know, doing fraud stuff. And now I'm doing data analysis. So a lot of, a lot of different things and, uh, nothing to do with anything I did in school. <laughs> Well, to be fair, a lot of people that I know who did pre-med or bio, um, who also, again, worked at a lab, stopped working in the lab. <laughs> and honestly, I think they're either in tech now or completely switched careers um, to somewhere else. So you're not alone there. <laughs> I guess that's good. Yeah. And, and I'm sure I've talked to some friends about it, too, uh, about them switching careers and stuff. It's definitely made me feel less alone, but it's and it also has we've shared feelings of like shame together of like, Oh no, I failed my parents. <laughs> we, we could probably just also have another podcast about career changes. Cause I know a handful of people who have completely switched careers and um, I would consider them successful. Yeah. So but don't feel you, you stuck with your career though, or your career. Path, I, right? Yeah, I, I have, I think, I, I think it's a series of, I don't know, unfortunate luck. <laughs> um, again, like I said, I didn't have a good path for me when I was in high school and I only knew of STEM because of a scholarship and I got it. It was, it was the Gates Millennium scholarship to, to pretty good scholarship, full ride, like I said, undergrad and graduate school. Um, so when it came time to actually figuring out what I wanted to study, 
um, on my college applications, I'm like, what's STEM? Let's just, let's do bio. Bio is a basic one to put down as, um, you know, my, my pre, pre-declaration. Um, but I ended up going to UC Santa Cruz um, because it was far away from home, but <laughs> the climate was close enough to what Humboldt was. They had redwood trees. And the first the first year I was there, they they messed up, I guess, all of the pre-declared majors for my entire class. Like there was a DB shift of some rows and everyone <laughs> who had <laughs> everyone who had their their pre-declaration written down was incorrect. So mine was changed to um, computer engineering. Oh, and, and yeah, so it wasn't bio anymore. I'm like, huh, this is strange. So I logged into the portal because I had to sign up for my classes. I'm like, this is strange. I'm like, what's computer engineering? <laughs> and I looked up what these classes were that I had to take to fulfill my core requirements. And I'm like, huh, I guess it's a lot of math and some uh, computer science stuff. I don't know what that is because our high school did not have computer science courses. Um, so I am like, okay, I'll, I'll go with this. So I continued with that um, until my sophomore year when I actually had to declare my major. And by that mm-hmm. point, I already knew that I didn't like computer engineering because there was one class that was like a break for me. It was like CE 12. I absolutely hated that class. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I don't want to do computer engineering. And I, I wanted to see what classes um, I already took that would fulfill the core requirements for another major. And, and luckily another major that had just been created um, that year was the computer science game design and program. Okay. So yeah. you, you didn't question it at all that your your pre-declared major was changed. You're like, ah, I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> I didn't because like wow. I said, like I didn't have strong plans or anything because mm. I didn't have anything set for me. And, and STEM sounded good. I was good at math. Um, I wanted to do something technical. I feel like uh, one other hobby I, that I, I skipped when I was in high school was I did a lot of um, web design. Mm. Uh were you a GeoCities like, person? <laughs> I was GeoCities. GeoCities, Angel Fire, Clickety <laughs> Draggedy. Uh, I was pretty good at HTML and CSS. Did very little JavaScript and like basic PHP. And <laughs> yeah, I, I made my own designs that I thought were hot, you know, yeah. table-based layouts. <laughs> did, you, did you have those uh, counters on your website and everything? For- I, I did. I had a counter that when you refresh the page, it ticked up by one, <laughs> no matter who you were. <laughs> I had mid-eye playing. I had blink and marquees and animated GIFs. Oh my goodness. Um, all that thing. You know, your MySpace, you can edit it. Yep. yep. Asian Avenue. Yeah. That was me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like I already knew that I sort of liked computers. So I, I just didn't know that there was a path in your career that you could take, to, you know, um, and learning about it being having this be your major. So I'm like, oh, computer science sounds okay. But it was computer science game design. So you would have the core foundational computer science um, knowledge about algorithms and data structures and compilers things like that. And then you would have, um, you know, game design theory, uh, sort of, um, you would learn how to make video games, uh, not necessarily using a program, but sort of 
from scratch. Like you, some people wrote their own engines. Um, we, we would have like graphics classes for ray tracing and adding textures. And that was very math heavy, like uh, transforming matrices and stuff. Like we weren't using an application to render things. We were writing this out from scratch. So it was still very uh, programming heavy. Um, so that, it was like computer science foundations and lots of math and some physics. Um, so when I graduated, um, there actually, I had two paths. It was one, um, I was talking about this with my advisor who I actually had a pretty good relation <laughs> with <laughs> this time around. Better compared um, to high school, huh? Yeah, I think it was, it was, I think at this point, I stood out because one, I was female. Yeah. Female <laughs> Two, I was Asian. Yeah. The entire computer science department, I guess engineering in general, there was very few women. And like I stood out like a sore thumb. There was only two women in my entire department um, wow. for game design. Um, the, the granted that the department was pretty small. I think there was our graduating class was only like 25 or 30 people. Um, I forget exactly. And the entire engineering department was less than a hundred. Oh, wow. Game design made up a huge chunk of it. So there was electrical engineering, computer engineering, computer science, and the computer science game design that made up the entire engineering school at UCSC. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Davis, but Davis had a yeah. really big engineering department. Um, we had like a lot of different engineers too, but it, computer science, I, I feel like there was a lot of people. I knew a lot of computer science majors, but sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was speaking with my um, advisor, he said, me, you should have told me about this scholarship that you had. That makes a huge difference in grad school because basically you're a free student to have. And if you're free, more, more universities are likely to have you. Like so many universities would love to have you because you're already paid for. And I had no idea about that. Again, like I, I didn't know much or anything about graduate school. Mm. He also said, um, with my background, computer science, basically, I'm a, I know how to program developer and I'm in Silicon Valley. It's probably going to be very easy for me to get a job in the tech industry yeah. as an engineer. Um, and they pay very well. And I basically have two paths and it's going to be hard to shift once I go on one. Either one, I get a job and get a really nice paycheck. And it would be really hard to let go of that paycheck to continue school after that if that's but I realized that's what I wanted to do mm -hmm. or I can continue school. Um, but for computer science, it's, it's really, you usually don't get a master's for computer science. Like what would you use that for? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, generally it's really strange for you to go get a computer science uh, master's degree and then go back to the industry. People, I don't know. I, I, feel, I feel like he was saying to me, relaying to me that that's a little strange. Um, so usually you go straight for a PhD. And at that point you are doing either research at an institute or um, it, it's, it's not too common to go into the industry and work. If you do, it's somewhere very large and specific um, yeah. at a really big com company. Um, so so I sort of made up my mind at that point. It was a little bit hard actually to let go of the scholarship um, and I felt a little guilty because I got this really prestigious, awesome scholarship that some other student could have taken advantage of completely to its core, like going all throughout through grad school, you know, um, if for anything in STEM, like they could have trained to be a doctor, you know, yeah. for free. And I wasn't taking advantage of that. So I, I, 
I felt really bad for a while there trying to figure out like what I wanted to do with my life because I didn't I think I liked the idea of going all the way to get like this PhD mm-hmm. to have that title because that's something my dad really wanted it's like oh, I really yeah, get a PhD <laughs> yeah um get the title and either that or just stick with my bachelor's of science and work in the industry um and I think that, that took me a while I don't know how long it took me to finally accept it. I don't know, even after I made my decision of continuing to work in industry, I felt really guilty. And sometimes even today, I think back about it because um, they, I think a couple of years back, they uh, ended that scholarship program. So it doesn't exist anymore. Wow. Okay. Um, I, I think, uh, I'm not exactly sure why the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation ended that particular scholarship, but I think there are different umbrellas underneath them still exist. Mm, okay. I'd have to look that up. Uh, but they do have an alumni association that's still pretty strong. Um, but yeah, so I, I work as a software engineer now, primarily do front-end development, and I've been working only at startups, really. <laughs> a couple that have failed, um, good experiences to have but bad to actually be in. It sucks. It's stressful. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, been ha- I've had a pretty consistent career path since then. So as someone that's been part of a lot of startups, some that have been successful, some that have failed, um, what would you say your definition of success is? Um, that's a tough one because I, I don't know. I feel like I have my own personal definition and then when I see my parents' definition and them frowning at me, like, I'm like, am I, am I okay with this? Because at the end of the day, like, I still respect who they are and I want them to be happy with what I have and what I am and who I, you know, grew up to be. But yeah. I, I don't think they're proud of who I am, honestly. Um, maybe they are a little bit. Like, I've, I've proven to them that I'm this, I'm, I am independent and I have my own career. I think my mom actually said she's proud of me. Um, I don't know how, how short, how short lived that was though. <laughs> I'm, I'm just so proud of you. I think something that's, that's interesting with the Asian American experience is we, we have all felt that our parents don't love us or, you know, at some point in our <laughs> lives, but you know, when they're doing things like, uh, telling you to come eat food or like making your favorite dish when you come home from school. That or, is like, their way of telling you. Yeah, exactly. You. So yeah. I'm sure yeah. she, she is proud of you. And she just doesn't verbalize it like what we expect, I suppose. <laughs> Thank you, Jackie. I feel love for my mom. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess for me, my definition of success is literally just being financially stable. I don't think that's the most important part, though. I think there is a lot of um, personal contentness. Yeah. Being okay with myself and being happy with myself, regardless of the material things. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause sometimes like when I'm just sitting at home drinking tea and not having to worry about anything else, like my health or whether or not I have a roof or food or anything like that, like me not having to worry about anything at the current moment is success. And, and I think a lot of that is just privilege too. Um, but I don't know, maybe my definition of success is just not being a failure in society. <laughs> it's very, it's, it's not too strong. I, I, I feel like I don't like to make it seem like something extraordinary. I don't think it is. 
I, I feel like people need to lower their bar of what they, what success is because they should just be happy with this, this lower bar <laughs> of being able to just live and not worry about outside things that are troubling them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think everyone has, depending on how they're influenced, have different definitions of success. And I think for, at least for me personally, I, I think it has changed a lot with each level of, I suppose, each level of success that I've reached. Because um, for, for me, when I was a kid, of, of course, the definition of success was to become a doctor. Dentist. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Dentist, doctor, you know, one of those professional careers. Um, but uh, after, you know, that fiasco of me trying to figure out where what I was doing with my life, um, for a while, it, the definition of success um, for me was, was stability. Um, and I think mm, that mm-hmm. went in line a lot with what my mom wanted for me. Um, the, the idea of stability, having a job that you could always rely on having healthcare, um, that you could rely on and whatnot. Um, but as I've grown older, um, I think this is where we agree with like having that balance is very important. Um, like obviously having a nice paycheck, especially in, in the tech world is, is nice, but, it's you, you have to have that balance too, right? Like I've, I've worked for companies that pay me well, but the work environment is awful. Um, and Mm -hmm. you know, having, you know, uh, getting paid a little bit less than, than a previous company is, is fine. If the, if the work environment is great, if you love your coworkers, if you love what you do, you love the mission of the job. Um, so I think now I think in that spot where I'm not, necessarily struggling paycheck to paycheck, um, the definition of success for me is, is to be able to have a job that is stable, but also has that good work-life balance, right? And having, having a company that I work for that isn't, um, you know, like evil or, <laughs> or yeah. whatnot, um, having a, a good, I guess, mission statement, um, that yeah. I'm working towards. Evil Corp. Yeah. I, I, I like, I like your, um, how success has evolution for you over time. I, I think it, it makes complete sense because you have a different view of the world um, and you've had different experiences to help you shape what you think success is. Um, I feel like for both of us right now, our definition of success is tied a lot around money Yeah, because we're adults now <laughs> um, and we have to pay the bills. And unfortunately where we live in our lifestyle, uh, it, it, does really heavily involve money. Um, I live in San Francisco. Yeah. In Portland. <laughs> They're not necessarily cheap places to live. Yeah. We, we have to have jobs that are stable, but what if we had, we removed all of that? Do you think you can come up with a definition of success or do you think that the word success is so tied with the value of your wealth that you, you can't think about it outside of that? I think if we were to remove money out of the equation, <laughs> my answer would become very cheesy. Um, it would be... Um, Live, laugh, love. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, essentially, that's what it would be. Like, it would be like the definition of success is, is, is happiness, right? And that is super cheesy. But realistically, I think that's what a lot of people see success as, being able to provide for your family, right? Um whether that be monetary or not, uh, you want your children to be happy. You want them to be able to, 
to eat enough, um, to have enough time to play and be children, um, just all that stuff, depending on like, I guess who you are as a person, your definition of happiness will vary. But I think definition of success, if we take out the monetary aspect of things, which is difficult because the world revolves around money, right? Um, I think the core of it is, is just happiness and what you define as happiness. Cause you know, especially nowadays where we're all stuck at home. Um, I think happiness could be like being able to sit on the couch and watch an hour of trash TV a day, or like <laughs> being able to go to the gym and, and work out and, and get those gains. Right. Um, and <laughs> it all depends on, on your own personal likes and wants, but I think the core of it is, is, is happiness. Yeah. I think that's, that's true. I think just circling this back to how we grew up, our parents, um, our values, like we, we grew up (laughs) not wealthy. Um, so money has always been an issue for me growing up, um, sort of both emotionally and I guess sort of physically too. Like we didn't, we didn't have a lot of material things growing up. Um, it is, I would, it's a privilege today for me. Like I don't have to worry about having enough money or not to buy a violin. If I wanted to buy a violin, then now I could, the problem would be finding the time to actually learn <laughs> to play. Uh, but yeah, I, I feel like, I don't know if I'm scarred by the lack of money when I was younger, but definitely helped shape who I am today and how I think about it. Like I am, I am not a high maintenance person. I'm, I'm pretty frugal. I care about buying and purchasing and spending my money on higher quality things. And, uh, then I am like of cheaper things these days. I, I try to be conscious about how I spend my money. What about you? I feel like that has changed a lot for me. I feel like my sense of, I mean, yes, the, the, since we didn't grow up with a lot of money, um, you have to learn to be frugal, but I think that's changed a lot for me. I think before, um, you know, like when I was a teenager, um, working just, you know, your part-time job and earning enough money to buy your own things instead of asking for mom, it's, that's changed a lot for me. Like buying cheaper things from forever 21 was, was a thing, right? It's like, <laughs> Oh, I can buy it. It'd be fine. It's cheap. Um, versus now where, like you said, like investing money into something that's higher quality that will last longer is, is a big thing, especially for like some of my hobbies now, like with camping stuff, I want to buy things that will last for a long time and will not go to shit when, you know, I'm in in the middle of a mountain somewhere and things fall apart. That would be awful. Um, So that's, yeah, that's changed a lot for me in terms of like material wealth, like being able to have the funds to invest in something that may cost a little more, but will last a longer uh, amount of time. Cool. I feel like this is a, a good time to end our discussion about our background. We've opened up a lot of questions and topics that we would like to expand on, including education systems. Uh, we briefly didn't even touch investing in money and saving <laughs> in the service industry. Uh, we didn't really talk too much about that. You talked about Starbucks. <laughs> oh, I have uh, many stories to tell you guys about Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. And even like government assistance and our thoughts, and we didn't talk about bootstraps, Jackie. Oh, bootstraps. <laughs> the the one thing that is holding up the American economy is bootstraps. <laughs> okay. Any last things you want to say? 
Uh, no, not really. I'm excited. I'm excited we're doing this and I'm excited uh, to talk about all those other things. I feel like as we talk about them more, I realize that we have a lot of thoughts about them. So there'll probably be a lot more episodes, which I'm excited about. It's true. I'm really excited that we're actually recording this too. We, we, we have a tendency to just go on and on about certain things. Um, <laughs> I think it's really important for us to jot this down, but also like, I feel like our, uh, definitions and our thoughts are going to change over time again too like our definition of success I'd, I'd like to hear what we how it's changed like a year from now <laughs> yeah it's it probably will change I feel like when I um I don't know if you used to keep a journal or a diary but like sometimes I'll read all my preteen and teenage <laughs> angst embarrassing yeah, it's embarrassing <laughs> but also it's interesting to see how what you care about changes a lot over time oh yeah and definitely viewpoints on different things which i'm sure we'll go through um at some point in some episode sounds good well thank you for listening to our podcast and you hope you come listen to us again thanks guys see you next time bye-bye Thank you.